Welcome to Making the Scene. I'm Eric Sippel, your host. Every week or two weeks, I guess, we're going to be a little irregular about this. We come and bring a guest on to discuss a scene from a movie that really means a lot to them and try to dissect both what is important about the scene and the technique of how they pull it off. And today, I am joined by Greg, Greg, I, I know how to pronounce your last name, and then it just blanked because I got scared because I didn't know how to pronounce your last name. Do you I've, been on, I've, I've been on Gobbledygeeks about seven times, and they've gotten my name right about once. Okay? Oh, so, so say your last name for me. It's, yeah. it's, it's Sadashini. 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 Yep. So this yep. is Greg Sadashini. Um, Greg, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am um, well. You know, I've come to to know you and the other guys um, on Twitter, and, and basically through being a podcaster. Um, I host uh, the Debatable Podcast. Um, we're on iTunes and Tumblr, by the way. Um, but yeah, no, it's a uh, it's a, a film and media podcast. We talk about people's passions and obsessions. Um, I come from uh, you know I, I know a little bit about film and media, and uh, I I really am uh, a, a strong a strong uh, purveyor of, uh, of of culture and pop culture and, and uh, philosophy and uh, sociology. I, I like I like talking to to people about these things. So that's why I had the, uh, the podcast. I'm also a filmmaker. haven't done a film in, in a while. Also try to write a little bit, but, uh, yeah, the main thing is, uh, is, uh, the debatable podcast. The debatable podcast is a, is a really fantastic podcast. I, I had one of my favorite discussions about film on debatable with Greg about, uh, John Carpenter's the thing. It was just a fantastic discussion. Um, so if you get a chance, go check that out. And he also has a, absolutely phenomenal two-part interview with my arch nemesis mayor smith um it's just it is just a, a a tour de force of getting into the background of a hollywood writer um so you should definitely check out both of those thank you so much man i appreciate it no problem also greg and i um were both victims of the um great lost podcast of 2013 um we did have an excellent discussion about breaking bad um and i'm gonna say finale and and greg constantly points out to me that i mispronounced this word and i can't stop myself um fantastic but it was it was a great talk and i i'm always love talking to greg and when i came up with this podcast greg was right at the top of my list of people that i wanted to have on um thanks so much man no, I'm, I'm glad to have you. Um, so Greg, uh, Greg actually was someone who sent me a, a vast list of possible scenes and let me pick one of them off the list. And uh, the one that we picked is from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is the first of the movies that have been picked by any of my guests that I hadn't already seen. Um, so I actually got a chance to watch a new movie out of this, which is very exciting. And um, Butch Cassidy is directed by George Roy Hill and written by, I could not believe this when I found out, William Goldman, who you probably know from The Princess Bride. Just yep. a fantastic writer. Um, yep. Great choice of movie, Greg, overall. This was a really exciting I, movie to watch. 
I love it. I love it. It's one of those movies that I, I grew up on watching as a, as a kid. I think that my, uh, my dad and I bonded over watching movies, and that's kind of how I was uh, brought up. And he got me, of course, he, he got me watching the movies that he liked. And, you know, he, his formal years were the 50s and 60s. So I watched a lot of movies from that time period. And he loved Paul Newman, too. So that was a big part of it, um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. This is one of those movies that we used to play on repeat i'm t- i'm talking about daily <laughs> daily we would watch this we would watch the good the bad and the ugly i would watch back to the future over and over and over again <laughs> i i love this choice because you know, westerns are one of the genres of movies that i was i almost didn't see any of when i was younger i mean the yeah. first western that i remember seeing was unforgiven which is like the wrong first western to see because oh, it's, it's, it's like <laughs> yeah. totally the last western like in all yeah. conception yeah. Um, so it's commenting on everything that came before it. But, you know what's interesting, though, having done in that direction, it sort of served as a window to me when I decided to finally go back and watch Westerns. Yeah. I was able to see it through the lens of the re-examining of the Western right. that that did. Um, but this was one of the ones that – I think that the only – the last remaining – I take it back, not the last remaining, but one of the last big Westerns I have yet to see – um, is is the Wild Bunch, which we'll talk about a little later. But that's I've actually finally gotten most of my big westerns. Well, did you did you see? Uh, I, I know that we're going to get to it, but have you seen uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid? No, I have not seen that. Is that is that a must see? You that is a must see. If you're going to see the Wild Bunch by Peck and Paul, you have to see the restored Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid because that is. That that that's a movie that came out after the U.S. Western cycle, and that is a movie that kind of bridges uh, the the U.S. Western cycle with with kind of um, j- just Peck and Paul's outlook on on violence and and kind of the destruction of man. As as big a theme as that is, um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is probably uh, the movie that uh, that. It, it was almost a lost movie, and it's almost a uh, a uh, what's a mission statement for for a manifesto. That's the word I'm looking for. A manifesto for for Peck and Paul as a filmmaker. Um, I and fucking Bob Dylan's in it, man. You have to see it. I, I love it. I'm gonna I'm gonna make <laughs> sure I see that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so so Greg, t- tell us a little bit about what scene we're gonna be watching. You picked a um, a sort of different take than a lot of other people have done for scene. So tell us right. a little bit about this. Well, the, well, the first thing is obviously that that I think that my my scene, my quote unquote scene, is really a sequence, and it's pretty much the the second act of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is a a, a prolonged chase. Um, our two our two heroes, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, who are part of uh, uh, the Hole in the Wall gang led by Butch Cassidy, um, they have um, finally been uh, caught up by uh, what would become the Pinkertons uh, eventually. But it is actually based in fact; it's a super posse um, put together by the um, the railroad line. Um, I believe the the guy who runs the railroad line, and of course the uh, the the money transfer E. H. Harriman, who uh, who was running the flyer train that that the uh, the hole in the wall gang in the movie at least in in legend um, knocked over several times. So E. H. Harriman took it uh, personally, and he hired the best lawmen in uh, the United States from all different territories. In fact, it's talked about in the sequence 
um, that these lawmen don't go out of certain states. They, they don't leave Wyoming. They don't do this. But E.H. Uh, e. Harriman brought them all together, probably paid them a, a tidy sum to hunt down Butch Cassidy and kill him. Um, and uh, though this prolonged sequence, this chase, is probably one of the best in in uh, history and one of the best in uh, in uh, in Western in the Western genre. Uh, it is um, a, a work of fiction. They uh, as soon as the super posse came on the scene and uh, Butch and Sundance got the uh, the the word that they were to be hunted down and killed, they left the United States immediately for South America. There was no chase. There was no uh, prolonged action. It was just get out of here. So um, this is where we're, we're, we're jumping into. It's, it's a chase scene that I really admire a lot from a narrative perspective. And uh, we'll get into the other details that just make this, you know, uh, really a, a, a milestone in, uh, in, in good narrative, ten- full of tension type sequences and and for um audiences watching um where we are actually gonna do a section of the chase sequence the entire chase if you take it from the moment the chase begins with butch and sundance uh hitting one of the flyer trains and that going bad and then the yep. the posse shows up and they go on the run um, they, they, they they show up in their own train yes a, a, <laughs> a separate train pulls up and outride this this super posse and um, and there's a good chunk of scene before that. We're actually picking up. They end up at a brothel in the, about the middle of the chase. So the, we're doing about ten minutes into where the chase scene starts, um, which they they've already been on the run for a little bit. But if you take the entire scene, I think this is about thirty five minutes of film. Yeah. The from the moment the chase starts until the chase ends, um, and and it's which is. You know, I hate to use hyperbole, but this is kind of a singular sequence. I can't think of a sequence like this in a movie. Yeah, it's it's so it's so atypical too. Um, usually, uh, chases, especially for Hollywood movies, are so often truncated. Um, there, there's um, there is a, a a belief that that a good chase should should lead into suspense and tension and and you should have this but you don't see this in modern day filmmaking it was really uh it was even atypical for classic filmmaking it's just i remember uh seeing an interview with william goldman who said that this was turned down by studios to get made because they thought that that was a, a complete um uh, uh roadblock as soon as that came up, it was it was just way too much of a scene. I mean, in obvious, uh, it, obviously, in in modern cinema, it would have been cut down I- immensely. Also, the other part of it is that uh, they didn't want the movie to even go to South America. They said that if we were going to have this long a chase sequence, that it had to lead into a major fight. So they wanted Butch and Sundance to stand up against the lawmen and, and, and have a shootout, have an act, a real action scene. And uh, certainly Goldman was not keen to that. First of all, <laughs> it didn't really talk to the characters, and obviously it didn't match the story of the movie. But, uh, yeah, it, it, is, it is atypical, to, to say the least. You're absolutely right. It's a, it's a singular thing you don't see very much in movies as a whole to take a whole over half an hour to to – um, kind of flesh out character. There's a lot of character building in the in this uh, 
prolonged sequence. Yeah, at the point at which this chase sequence begins, we've really only gotten an extended introduction to Butch and Sundance. We've met them briefly in their lives, we get a little hint of them with their gang, and we see them, you know, the the barest hint of what their life has lived like. But this is the first time that we get to see the two of them alone for a very long time, and, and I think that's a great place to start talking. Um, so, Butch and Sundance are played by Paul Newman and uh, Robert Redford, respectfully, and this is an absolutely phenomenal on-screen pairing, the two of these actors. Yeah. Um, they, they did two movies together, and I wish there were more, actually. They only did the two? It was the yep. only two they did together? Yep. I, I'm, I'm blanking. I know, cause I, I'm, I'm, oh, it's... Um, On The Sting, yeah. The Sting, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, really, just, these two are, are just phenomenal together. I mean, it's, I'm, I was blown away by not just the, the chemistry that the two of them have, but the, especially Robert Redford's character is so unlike what I tend to think of as a Robert Redford character. Right, right. Um, it's actually, it's actually, uh, kind of atypical from what I understood of the time because he had trouble getting the job because they had only seen him, I think, uh, Barefoot in the Park is what he did previously, and that is a that is definitely not Sundance uh, in, in this. <laughs> uh, he's he's playing he's playing somewhere somewhere reserved, and as I've heard Redford describe it, he's the type of person. His character is the type of person that, in every conversation, he's thinking, "Am I going to have to kill this guy?" <laughs> So he's a stone cold killer, and uh, uh, to to hear people talk about the real life uh, guy, he was um, he was affable, but he was also kind of shy. So he wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, nearly as engaging. So that's really what Redford is bringing to it uh, is pretty 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 interesting. He's he's playing it really serious. And and meanwhile, Paul Newman is playing uh, Butch as a very smart, but but. <laughs> talks a little bit above his game his yeah. his his whole he's a he's a fast thinker but he's a faster talker and and he likes hearing himself talk and luckily Sundance doesn't mind too much listening right. to Butch talk right. which is why the two of them managed to be friends I think Butch Cassidy is the is the used car salesman of the group <laughs> he he really knows how, like uh, honestly this is probably a, a great read on on the real character too because uh, uh from all accounts he's a very affable person and and he could uh even when they knocked over uh banks or or the fire or anything he could go to someone's house and say can i hide in your basement and they would let him. <laughs> they were, he was he was he was a he was almost a folk hero he was a robin hood type and you end up with this the very classic and and when i say classic but it's a it's a buddy comedy kind of pairing almost, and it, and yep. it's very obviously been repeated through the ages. Every once in a while, you go back to a movie and you can see the genesis of like fifty other films. Yes, and there is the genesis of fifty other films just in the Butch Sundance pairing and the chemistry Absolutely. that they have. Absolutely, because I mean, obviously they're playing up um, the the. This is basically the the origin for buddy cop movies. This is the you know the the buddy comedy, and and to, to people who who see it on the surface, they think, you know, this is a, this is a, a western, but it's a surprisingly uh, light and 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 likable and lovable type. Uh, Western. It's not, you know, there are many sequences, many parts where you're, it's played light and you're in on the joke. You're going with the characters on kind of a fun romp. 
and what I what I love about it is that the the situation that they're in is dire. You know, and oh. in, the, in the sequence that we're talking about, it's a harrowing sequence of them being run down. And so underneath is the seriousness. But when we see them, they are are keeping themselves going with the the repartee and their banter. And right. the lightness of themselves keeps this from feeling so dour that you lose the movie. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, there's a lot of credit does need to go to William Goldman's script, who is, he is so precise with his dialogue. Um, and there's there's a, a lot of repetition of of uh, dialogue ideas, and one of the things I love is that multiple times in the chase sequence, they'll they'll do something, and Butch will have some kind of comment like, "Oh, that's it, they're never gonna follow us, we're safe." <laughs> and then Sundance will be like, "Are you sure?" And he'll be like, "Nah, I don't think right. so." Right, right. He, he the the lines are are great. I mean, uh, Goldman is 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 well regarded as one of the the best screenwriters ever, and he had a he he still does have quite a, a knack for for catchy snappy dialogue it was true in harper which he did previous to this and that kind of created a a relationship with paul newman it's a- absolutely true in this absolutely true in princess bride everything that i've seen that goldman has written he's brought this kind of snappy dialogue repartee to and and really you're having the the great words of goldman being put, you know, mixed with a chemistry between Newman and and uh, and Redford, which is it's very interesting. I mean, you have a a you have a an actor, like I said, with with uh, Redford, who was rather new, and you have an established actor, an established Hollywood icon like Newman, and to hear them tell it, they hit it off. They have the same sense of humor. They loved uh, being around each other. Newman. Checked all ego at the door and wanted uh, uh, Redford to have as much spotlight, share the spotlight with him. So that mixed with Goldman's words, I mean, you you talk about how how the uh, the characters come across and how funny it is with with uh, with Butch making these comments. I, I like the recurring uh, phrase every time they're like blown away by something the the super posse is doing, like in the way that they're tracking. Each one of them has their moment of who are those guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? I love that they're they're at the, they're completely. It's a mystery. It's completely they're they're completely in the dark with dread about what is this this um, this uh, faceless uh, um, uh, chase, this faceless person or faceless group coming after them. But at the same time, they are just dumbfounded. They have nothing else to say. I, I can't do that. How do they do that? You know. <laughs> You know, what's amazing about the repetition of those kinds of things, and this is the genius of the scene, is that it uses repetition um, and by modulating what's being yeah. said to, to give you an idea of what's going on. You know, they're, they're who are these guys, and I think we're right. safe. Those have very, a very light tone, like this is all going to be over soon at yeah. the beginning. And as they get worn down, it's very slight, but you can see that their banter is still there, but the the hope behind it is starting to fade as Absolutely. we get through the scene. Absolutely, and as you're getting even to the uh, to to further on and towards the end of the scene, when they're starting to figure out who it is, I mean, it's first with with Sun realizing that it's probably this full-blooded Indian named Lord Baltimore who's tracking them over uh, over um, rock, which is insane. Being able to track uh, and to be an assailant and track someone over rock, and they're really and and, and Sundance is like, uh, do you remember that trip we took? 
And and Butch Cassidy's reaction is, yeah, I'm glad that you're bringing this up when we're about to die. You know, he's like, I had the steak at a at a place. Their their other companion, Etta had the chicken, and if I can remember what you had, I'll die happy. You know? <laughs> it's it's lines like that that completely make this this sequence for me. It's just that they're playing off of each other. There's lightness. They, they can be they can be light and jokey at least for the viewer's expense in in uh, in the face of of certain doom and dread. And you get the same way you get repetition and modulation in the regular dialogue in those stories. You get kind of a mirroring. You know, it's first yeah. it's it's Sundance who gives the story about Lord Baltimore, and then uh-huh. later it's Butch who realizes the man in the white hat who's chasing after them is probably LaFour's. Yeah, um, and so they each yep. they each get their moment of recognizing who is probably chasing them, with the other one disbelieving. It's it's in both cases, yeah. one of them is telling who they think it is, and the other one is like, no, that can't be it. Exactly. I love that part. I love I love that that mirroring. Because, yeah, you're you're basically uh, psychologically or, or character wise, you're you're playing a convincing game. You're like, how do, how do I persuade this? How do I convince them? How can I lay the the breadcrumbs to help uh, the audience, the viewer, realize that they are having you know this moment of clarity? And I love the fact that that he's sharing with him, you know, who who was that. That guy, he was he was a full blooded Indian. He goes by Sir Something, and it's the <laughs> it's it's uh, Butch Cassidy's uh, revelation. Oh, Lord Baltimore! And then in the next scene, it's basically you're right. It's flipped. Like who's the toughest lawman? And and uh, Sundance is like, uh, what do you what, who do you how do you mean by toughest? Like like you know the most brutal or or the easiest to bribe? <laughs> yeah, I think the line is who's the best lawman? And he goes, yeah, what do you mean toughest law- or easiest to bribe? <laughs> Yeah, and and I love that they are having this these revelations, and and really, um, it isn't even until after the sequence we're talking about that they are actually confirmed uh, in in their beliefs of who the super posse is. It is Joe Lafour's. It is uh, Lord Baltimore and the rest of the posse. And and that is and that's that is it makes it makes the scene so so tense because their their confusion is so profound and. And also, the the thing that's amazing about this scene to me is one of the hardest things to do in, in writing is to pick up an established relationship and to demonstrate that established relationship to the audience without explaining it. And, right. you know, it's very easy to be like, these two are best friends, but you need to see that to believe yeah. it. And by stripping away everything from these people and having <clears throat> actors with such potent chemistry together that are yeah. so inhabiting their roles, you believe these two have known each other for an extremely long period of time. You get the feeling that this is a deep and lasting friendship. Absolutely. And it's something that I come back to. It's the, it's the shorthand of, of good actors that are, that are um, uh, playing best friends. I, I see it a little bit in, um, in uh, Johnny Depp later in his career when he is uh, partnered with, with uh, Helena Bonham Carter or working with Tim Burton. But with uh with uh um Newman and and Redford especially uh not even in this sequence you I love seeing parts of this movie where they don't even have to say each other's name they just say hey hey <laughs> and all automatically that that person knows what's happening here 
you know, they are on your page. Oh, oh, he's not only trying to get my attention, but he's talking to me. So they have this friendship connection that that you know, it's like it's like my best friend. I I have you know, sh- we have short words, short sentences that people that we both recognize what's uh, what's being said there without having to explain it. And you're absolutely right; it comes across perfectly in this sequence because they're able to to just you know jump jump in with with the facts when they're trying to figure out like who's chasing them but also they they know what the they trust the uh, what the other one is doing we're going to you know uh we're going to um try to fake them out with the tracks that we're leaving you know they're both on the same page it's not necessarily that one person has um the uh the full picture or the full plan of how to get to it it's very improvised in a very friendship kind of way that you don't see on on screen very much and and you know i think that the best example of that there's this sort of this is one of those long sequences where there are microcosms of the longer sequence in individual scenes and and the one that i think gets across the acting and chemistry and pattern of their friendship best is actually the very end when they're on the cliff and they're about to jump into the lake and and butch is like okay, well, um, they're like rattling off what they think is going to happen and they're making right. jokes about what they think is going to happen and then Butch suggests that they jump into the into the water, which is one of Butch's loony-ass ideas. And, right. and Sundance is, is suddenly extremely angry about this idea of jumping <laughs> in and finally admits that he can't swim, which amuses. Like, that's that, like suddenly they have this moment of levity over right. the fact that he can't sw- and then they jump in. Right. It's like, like his worst fear is that he can't swim, and Butch Cassidy's like, the fall will probably kill you. Why are you worried about swimming? <laughs> and Butch and Bu- and Sundance would rather sit there and and get shot to death than yeah. than risk maybe being in the in the river right. and not being able to swim. Right. Like to him, the biggest fear is drowning versus getting shot up by the lawmen. Yep. It's it's a and it, that whole everything about that sequence. If you just wanted to see that friendship play out, you could watch that. I don't know, probably minute and a half, two minutes yeah. of dialogue, and that gets across what repeats throughout the entire movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about another shining star of this film, which is uh, cinematographer Conrad Hall, who yeah. is just a legend, an absolute legend. And I didn't know it was him doing the cinematography on this when I picked up the movie. I noticed it when I was taking notes. Oh my God! Is he firing on all cylinders in this movie? He's, he's great. I mean, when you talk about um, the the time period that he came up and how he established himself, I think that maybe the first cinematographer that I was aware of was Conrad Hall, and it was because of this movie. Um, you're, you know, of the time period and the film stocks that they're using and the techniques that they're using. This is a a beautiful movie in a dirty way. And uh, it probably has a lot to do with what Conrad Hall was, uh, or Connie Hall, because uh, <laughs> I know him now. Uh, but he, uh, as a cinematographer, he was experimental. He, um, you know, from any of the movies that you see, even though he became a much more established uh, figure in, in a Hollywood film years later, when he's young um, and, and doing it, shoot, shooting fast and dirty, uh, even though the, these are like uh, long setups and, and really um, traditional establishing shots, you can see that they're, they're pushing uh, the exposures, that they're dealing with really grainy, dirty footage, and uh, they're playing with, with time of day. They're playing with how much light they have. I'm surprised how much of this movie is played in natural dark. And that's really an independent movie thing. That is not a Hollywood movie thing. 
um, to, 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 sh to shoot dark scenes. There is a technique in here that we're about to talk about that is typical of, of traditional Hollywood movies, but uh, he brought kind of an independent, uh, young film, um, bohemian type approach to this, like the young filmmakers of the 70s, while Conrad Hall was a predecessor to, to the look of 70s uh, American cinema. I remember being in a, in a film class in college a, a long time ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, and, and my professor, who I really liked, and I learned a lot about film from him, uh, Dr. Bacher, um, and he was talking about how in the 70s, you know, film stock suddenly got a lot faster. And um, and he brought up The Godfather. The movies like The Godfather started right. instead of instead of using it to be able to light, to be able to get better exposure on things. Yeah. They brought the lights very far down and and pushed everything into you know depth of being able to play with depth of field and Absolutely. the kinds of things. And what was amazing to me is this movie was doing it in '69. Yeah, yeah. Th there are techniques that that I associated with '70s filmmakers, as you said. Yeah. That, you know, scenes where the lighting is very dark in the scene and the only lighting looks like um, in-scene lighting, a lamp, right. um, a, some, a little bit of light through the window. Um, and meanwhile, you have, you know, someone in the foreground and someone in the background and that background's out of focus and the person in the foreground's in focus. These are all techniques I associate with mid to late 70s filmmaking. Exactly. You're seeing all ed edge highlighting on a lot of these dark scenes. You're not seeing really, um, uh, you're not seeing key and fill lighting like we see in just traditional cinematography. They are really, they have no problem with it running off into complete darkness, losing that information. They're fine with that. Um, Con and Connie Hall is fine with that. I mean, the story that I hear is that George Roy Hill told him, I'm going to stage it, I'm going to set it up, I'm going to get the actors blocked up, and I'm going to get the actors uh, to, to um, get their lines and how they're going to approach the scene, and you shoot it. So he left it to Connie Hall to, to put his spin on it, his visual spin on it. And he really, he does that. I mean, letting, letting the, the uh, especially in the dark scenes at the beginning of the sequence that we're talking about, right after they've uh, left the whorehouse, this is uh, really, really dark. I think that they uh, had no other choice but to go into the technique of shooting day for night um, just to, 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 um, to show a little more detail of these two, like when they're hiding out near the rocks. But so much of the scene is just a lantern. So much of the scene is just, you know, uh, you get a little bit of light runoff around the uh, corner of a building. That's all you see. And you're right. I mean, that's the, you know, what, what you see in The Godfather, what you see with Gordon Willis, who would just use an overhead um, Kinoflow or, or a really diffused uh, light and no highlights, no fill, just straight up key or source, and uh, or coming in through a window, key or source. Um, that is something that was really popularized by by uh, what they would want the the most realistic, gritty, natural filmmaking of the seventies. You know, one of the things that I find with cinematography is, and you still see this now, even though that you know the these more advanced techniques in cinematography are, are fairly mainstream now, you can still watch in movies and, and you can always tell if a cinematographer is just lighting out of the cinematography handbook. Yeah. Or right. if they're doing something and often the really good cinematographers put a lot of time into thinking about where is the light actually coming from. Uh -huh. Right. And that is the big shift that you start to see 
in when the you know like with these kinds of movies is that exactly. we start to really start thinking about motivation of lighting. That, well, so many of those cinematographers, I I think from from just from my uh, reading and and from what I've taken away from it is that so many of those cinematographers did come up during the the 30s and 40s. They saw film noir. They saw that what we could do with B cinema, C cinema, the the, the cheap cinema, and they saw in there where those those uh, productions could only afford two light kits or whatever it wasn't that they were shooting with uh with a hollywood budget they were shooting fast dirty and loose and uh i mean we, we you know part of it is also a, a documentary a documentary style that became more popular in the 70s but at this point i mean uh having uh, c- coming up as a cinematographer probably conrad hall seeing a bunch of film noir he knew that you could do more than just the high key lighting especially the high key lighting of western movies uh it's almost uh my least favorite thing of american westerns is when you see perfectly plainly uh lit interiors uh and and exteriors you see some of these john wayne movies i mean i love i love uh john ford but he too uh had had problems with with just doing the traditional look of a western and it's interesting to be brought up on film noir which is so in the other direction so german expressionist so um so formal and uh and and so unrealistic and kind of marry that with what you see from your eye you know we can see in in dark we can see at lower lights and to kind of apply that to to cinema was creating, as Conrad Hall and Gordon Willis were involved, is creating a more realistic cinema because we're not doing everything so high key. We're not having everything, everything lit. Your backgrounds, your, you had hardly any shadows on a saloon scene. You know what I mean? Yep. And and you know, so you mentioned a technique that, I, if you wouldn't mind taking a second to go into detail about what the technique is, which you mentioned day for night, which is a technique that doesn't get used very often anymore because we don't need to technologically. Right. Te- so, technologically, yeah, exactly. Technologically, I mean, we see that uh, the most uh, used in, in, in post. I mean, uh, the most recent example that looked like day for night for me is uh, are some scenes from uh, True Grit, the, the Coen Brothers movie that they did a few years ago. Um, but even that, I think, might have been done in, in post. So, so, really, what, so what is day for night? So the technique is is quite traditional in terms of this time period and 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 especially shooting night scenes in black and white when black and white films had to do night scenes obviously we can't shoot in darkness we need some sort of light um so film noir was a perfect example because they would just put in put on a floodlight and you know you would have no problems but what if you're trying to uh, approach something from a realistic standpoint you want to do a realistic exterior um in order to to do that, often what they would do is they would shoot it during the day, uh, but they would use a filter that was darkened, like almost a, a neutral density filter. If you're uh, um, familiar, if you if the listener is familiar with uh, a darker neutral density filter, um, those those type of filters are supposed to you know bring out the colors of the sky, the colors of um, the, the more more vibrancy to the color that you're shooting. But in day for night, you're you're shooting in a couple different different ways you can you can do it you can affect the exposure you can affect the filter you could use the filter 
or I think the other way is there's another there's another way of doing it. It might be changing the speed of the film. But the main two ways that I know about are actually um, affecting the exposure and using a filter. So basically the way that you that you can figure out you're looking at day for night, it's, uh, it's actually pretty simple. If you're looking at a dark shot and you have full, um, full uh, light on an actor's face, or if you're looking at a long shot and you see long shadows. I mean, if you're seeing long shadows, obviously it's probably noon or midday. <laughs> Um, you can see that in those scenes, especially uh, when they're up in the rocks and they have the super posse coming after them. When they're waiting there, you can see that um, uh, that that Paul Newman's face is completely exposed, and it's you're getting what you they're they're trying to simulate moonlight. So they're getting these kind of moon this moonlight that they uh, it, it's falling off and it's creating a, a shadow. But because the rocks are there, it, it, your your mind thinks, oh, it's just moonlight shadow but really if you think about the way that it was shot you can see long shadows coming from both Newman and uh, Redford when they're running up that uh, little slope uh, with the horses and obviously it's shot midday and it's just easier to do because obviously you can't shoot um, with lights you can't if, if you have lights you have to have a good budget you also have to be able to move a company and moving a film company being mobile like that that's something that's uh, that's given to a director like David Lane that's not necessarily something that's given to George Roy Hill so with this you're able to use the best parts of, of our natural world which is sunlight you're able to use sunlight, and you're able to 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 uh, affectionately or or effectively make a uh, a night scene well, that uh, seems pretty real. The other thing that you get out of day for night that you would not get without serious serious lighting effects is that you can get landscape shots during night. You know, it's one thing to light your actors um, in the nighttime to try to simulate moonlight, but to the, the kinds of filmmaking that was going on in this, where you had these vistas, they were looking out over wide ranges of scenery and to do, to get, to be able to expose a huge amount of scenery at night would be nigh impossible. Absolutely. Um, so you get also these kind of, you manage to maintain the whole sense of scope in the American West that you would lose if you had shot that at night and just let the actors. I'm glad that you said that because the the epic vistas is, uh, I mean they're so cliche they're a, a trope you need to have them in 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 a western especially if you're in monument Val- valley or something like that you know yeah um but but another technique that is so informed by these beautiful vistas and this this epicness another technique that's obviously on on uh on a scene here is uh is uh zooms Yes. You don't see that. You don't see that in modern filmmaking. They hate zooms. They hate. They like fixed lenses, and uh, this was obviously, uh, you know, again, this is being informed by a time of shooting fast and dirty and loose, and also documentary style. Being able to use one setup and one shot, one one setup for a camera, and be able to see everything that you need just by zooming in on a character, especially when. Uh, Newman or Redford are trying to see far away this super posse coming for them, uh, you get some really dramatic zooms in here. 
and you you know in, in in the modern day cameras have become so small especially with digital that it's pop, that now we can do camera moves in situations where we could not have done camera moves in the 60s and you had these yeah. big heavy Humong- film cameras you needed you know they call they call what we call tracking shots now are a lot of times study cam shots but they were called yeah. tracking shots because they had to be on on tracks yeah on rails yeah and you know so doing again doing that kind of thing out in the middle of the the wild isn't really going to happen so Definitely. you have these so you have, and actually, the, the late '60s was a was seems like the time when these kind of heavy zooms really started to get to have, take effect. I noticed a lot of zooms that reminded me of The Graduate. Yeah. Um, in this so, movie, there's there's two really epic zooms that happen in this scene in this sequence. There's one when they're in the the whorehouse and they and the 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 brothel owner betrays them and they like zoom hard in on his uh-huh. on him as he points yeah. at the window. They I just love- like kung fu movie zoom. Yeah. In on him, and then and then actually they do the reverse in another sense of mirroring. When they jump off of the cliff, they do a stab zoom kind of out. Yes, they're uh-huh. they're very close on them, and then they zoom out so we can get the whole the whole cliff that they're jumping down. I I also uh, think about um, since we were talking about uh, a character and how it's it's um, it's kind of revealed over the course of this chase. There is a part where. Both of them are um, finally like up in the rocks and trying to to figure out what their plan is, and you can obviously tell that at least Sundance is uh, nervous and agitated, and they're waiting there on the edge of the the cliff here, looking at the super posse, and uh, the sound drops out. I think that only you can hear a little bit of wind or something like that. And all of a sudden, there's just a click, like a rock falling, a sound that sounds like a rock falling. And uh, it, 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 he's, uh, uh, Sundance snaps around and shoots a snake that was you know, coming down the, the edge of the cliff above them. And uh, the zoom that really sticks in my mind is after he does that, it kind of comes from uh, Butch Cassidy's reaction and zooms like to an over-the-shoulder shot straight to uh, Redford. And Redford just, you know, kind of shrugs like, you know, I'm I'm nervous. I'm sorry. But, you know, that 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 scared me. That was a great use of sound design there, too, which there there's not a whole lot of sound design to talk about in the sequence because it's mostly naturalistic sounds as they're doing it. But that's a great moment when he shoots the gun. There's this echo of the gun making noise throughout the planes. And then you get this sheepish shrug. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that about the audio, also, because um, a lot of traditional westerns would have made this chase wall-to-wall music. No, and and even though they have uh, Burt Bacharach um, as the as the person who did the score for this movie, I don't think there is a shred of score in yeah. this sequence. Am I right about that? Uh, that's that's true. I think that even uh, um, during early screenings where people were laughing and George Roy Hill was pretty uh, depressed about how his uh, movie was coming out when they were doing the, the first screenings, um, he, he was constantly getting uh, reactions back that it was too funny, uh, that there was too much music. And he actually went back and counted how much music is in the movie. In this two-hour movie, there's only 13 minutes of music. Wow. So. It's pretty. It's pretty insane that that Burt Bacharach's music does make an indelible impression, especially the the raindrops keep falling on my head, B.J. Thomas song. But on top of that, it's it's surprising when you think of so much of this 
uh, movie is is uh, just natural sound. That is not something that you see in uh, Hollywood movies, especially Hollywood westerns. Absolutely not. Yeah, it's it's a half an hour sequence with nothing but but horse hoof beats and wind and the occasional sound of a gunshot or yep. or water and that's it that's the whole sound design yeah and that's uh the the, the thing that really sticks with me are uh, like you said the hooves the the thunder coming with this uh super posse as they're coming over the plains yeah yeah it's it's it it, it, it becomes a part of the rhythm of the scene that you have this relentless drum of of horse hoof beats yeah throughout it um, so, oh, and uh, for cinematography, before we move on from that, there's one other technique that I want to mention, which is which is something that has unfortunately gone away a lot in modern cinema, which is anamorphic uh, 2.35 uh, ratio. Right. We we've kind of gone away, even though we have even though everything is sort of widescreen now, we don't get that kind of landscape widescreen that that was right. really big in the era when they were trying to compete with television and and give a sense of scope that television cannot provide. Right. Um, and, and for anyone who doesn't know what anamorphic widescreen is, um, anamorphic, so most, the, the, the shape of, of 35 millimeter film is a little bit widescreen. The, the ratio is, I think, 1.85 1. 8, 1. Yeah. to 1. Yeah. Um, so, but the thing is, they don't have different film for that. So what they do is they screw a different lens on, uh, basically a, a lens on top of the lens that squishes a 2.35 to 1 ratio image onto a 1.85 film strip so actually when you go ahead and reproject it you need something to re re-expand yeah. it because right. it's actually this squished image on this film it's a hack it's totally a hack and it is the most gorgeous hack i think in all of filmmaking yeah, absolutely you had you had some fucking intelligent designers doing that um you're right that's that's what it is to to sell um the the uh specific the the specific thing that that uh movies can bring to it that tv could not and that's just epic spectacle um but you know what we have no one we have we have nothing to blame but ourselves because um though david fincher and a couple other filmmakers still shoot in 240 or 239 or 235 they've all become kind of uh similar um i actually i think they're they're all uh synonymous um, even though we do have filmmakers that that choose to shoot in that style, um, almost all movies are thought about nowadays to adhere to sixteen by nine televisions. So uh, it has gone back to people shooting epic movies in one eight five or one seven seven, which is the HDTV um, aspect ratio, because it's so weird. That when DVDs became really popular, um, they, there was a time when they were still selling full screen DVDs and and the widescreen DVDs. You could choose, but really the stink came from people saying people that weren't aware of aspect ratios saying, "Where are these black bars coming from? I'm sick <laughs> of seeing these black bars." So in a weird way, culturally, we've influenced the movies that we've seen, both by the technology, the 16 by 9 televisions, and trying to cater to the lowest common denominator. You want someone who's not going to complain about those black bars on their television that they just you know, bought during the uh, Super Bowl sale at, uh, at uh, Best Buy. So that's why you don't often see it anymore. Even on the biggest Hollywood films, a lot of them are still shot 185. Yeah, and it's too bad because it is a, 
you know, aspect ratio is a is a very important thing in terms of how we perceive a movie, and we get so used to things having the same aspect ratio and it being the shape of our television, we don't think about it. But if you you know really take a moment if you haven't before to go and look at a two point three five movie. I mean, I I think this is an excellent example. I might nudge you towards David Lean if you want to only pick one yes. uh, landscape movie. Absolutely. But but this is an excellent example of what you get out of it, and what you get is. A sense of of lateral scope you know you get you get yes. this sense that there is a great deal of screen real estate because we tend to not focus on the up and down you know the the right. the, ver- the vertical stuff we don't tend to see as much you can go as high vertical as you want to and it doesn't do much for us right but you go you go horizontal you you stretch it out and suddenly there's a face on the right half of the screen but it's only taking up maybe a quarter of the screen and then there is this massive vista off to the left you get so yeah. much and that's what and and conrad hall's shooting of using of his use of anamorphic in this you always get a sense of the the scope of the scene by him using that entire frame absolutely because he's also you got to imagine that even with uh anamorphic uh lens um and some of it i would guess some of it i couldn't couldn't even give it a percentage to it for this sequence but i mean some of it has to be uh, wide angle lenses but you can also tell that he's shooting a lot on telephoto lenses that the lack of um of uh depth of field the soft depth of field on so much uh, so much of this you can tell that he is 20 30 feet away with a telescopic uh, telephoto <laughs> lens shooting this kind of like fucking kurosawa did in you know the the uh 50 in the 60s when he was at his height but yeah you can see that so much of the material in this uh, 235 aspect ratio all that real estate is used even when they're doing that really kind of zoomed close up really flattening telephoto lens um, uh, effect it is really taking up the whole screen he is using composition. I'm so glad that George Roy Hill didn't put more restriction on him because he is using it in in a in a painterly way composition wise. And and you get a, and you get in the sequence a variety of techniques both um use of the frame to give a sense of scope outside but also a lot of scenes where there is very complicated composition in terms of yep. who is where in the scene. There's a scene in a sheriff's office in the you know in the middle of the sequence where you have the sheriff on the right side of the screen in the foreground. You have Butch on the left side of the screen, almost just his face yeah. on the left side. And then in the background, not quite in focus, at the window is Sundance. Yeah. And you have all three characters in screen at once having a conversation. And there's no it doesn't feel cluttered. It feels yeah. each person has taken up their block and you get both a sense of, of lateral scope and of depth in that yeah. one shot. Absolutely, you're getting a lot. You're 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 using it in a very particular way. You're absolutely right. Every single person is in their own little piece of the real estate. So the the um the idea of composition and widescreen actually gives us a, a nice transition to the next thing I want to talk about, which is the the sense of editing and pacing overall that he uses to create a rhythm that George Roy Hill creates. And the the first thing that comes to mind when I think about how the scene is constructed overall is that one of the main repeated components is riders on horses crossing the screen. Yeah. And you get someone coming from one end of the screen to the other or sometimes a camera panning with them, but that sense of length of shot makes it feel like they're covering a lot of distance. Absolutely. Absolutely. You get you get a lot of that. You get a you get long duration shots too. Um it the the pacing is not like really the pacing is not staccato. It really is it takes its time to build. This is a 
this is the when you get into the editing of this sequence, you you realize that this is the tension of the scene takes time to build. It's not the tension yes. of being caught that minute. It's the tension that you can never get away. It's the dream. It's the nightmare where no matter how long you run, the thing is still at your heels. Exactly. And it takes time to build that. And if you would rush the sequence, you would have gotten a completely different feel. You would have gotten you know, a Michael Bay car chase sequence is fairly yeah. easy to create tension in. Yeah, you know, you have two cars. You they're going very fast. One of them can keep bumping the other one's ass. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very it, the tension sort of comes along with it. And this you ne- we never even see the faces of the men coming after them. Right, right. They're, they're always they're a they're a cloud in the distance. They're a handful of blurry horses, right, far away. And so that tension builds slowly through the rhythm of the scene. Absolutely, it's this again. It's this faceless menace, this this dread, and I think that it's it's perfectly um, uh, creating that tension with the viewer because you're we're we're living with Butch and Sundance. We're not with we're not seeing that side of the of the story from the super posse coming after them. Um, that tension is there because it's just dread. You you know the 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 real definition of dread is is and knowing a full on feeling that it's uh, finally going to happen and that you you are helpless to stop it from happening and uh, as the as the movie go goes on as the sequence goes on I should say uh, there really is less and less hope um, it isn't until Butch and Sundance start facing what who are these guys. You know, facing who could these guys be that they start kind of understanding what they're up against. I mean, even later in the movie, <laughs> I hate to, uh, to to spoil the ending, but even at the end uh, when Butch and Sundance are going to meet their demise, their biggest dread is that Joe LaFors is still out <laughs> Yeah, not even, they don't even think about the army that's out there. Yeah, the Bolivian army is the one who's their threat at the end, and they're still afraid. They're still seeing Joe Lafour's over their shoulder. Exactly. In know, his in his straw in his straw hat. Yeah, and and the, what's interesting about the overall, there's a lot of techniques on display in that they use to build tension, and and one of the things that I think is interesting that was maybe the one that took me a while to pick, and it's it goes counter to what you see a lot in what you'd learn in a classroom, which is. When you're trying to show people traveling, the the standard lesson you'll get is you show them traveling across the screen in the same direction in all of your shots. Right. Left to right, left to right. Or if you choose right to left, right to left, right to left. This sequence alternates. Yeah. Left to right and right to left. Every so it's it's kind of built as scenes of writing, a scene of talking. Scenes of writing, a scene of talking. And almost every time we cut from talking to writing, they're going in a different direction across the screen. Right. And and I'm curious, Greg, if you agree with my take on this. I feel like one of the reasons, one of the things that gets across is that they're lost. They don't know where they are, and they even say that a bunch of times, that they have no idea where they are, and I feel like that was part of the intention of that. Part of that, absolutely agree. And and I think even furthermore, I, I, I think that that is, uh, you can't get away from it, no matter which way you go. I, I like that. Yeah, you, you, can, you can make any turn you want, and yeah. they're still behind you. Yep, and that's the thing that, that that's the thing that keeps coming up narratively too for them is that they they're trying to find ways to outsmart this posse. They're finding ways to try to throw them off their trail and to uh, to get rid of their tracks. Send send some horse tracks going in this direction. At least we can split them up. And do they fall for it? No. So 
this faceless posse is obviously smarter than them. And, and the thing is that they try every trick that they know. And even, you know, in an editing style, even in the, in the narrative editing here, no matter what they do, wherever they travel, this cloud is still coming for them. They and can't what, get away from it. What you get out of it, what's interesting is you can kind of see this sequence as its own mini movie. There, I remember when I learned about um, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, um, one of the things that I that was discussed was its narrative structure is sort of classical adventure structure in that you have a scary, safe alternating yep. pattern. Um, you know, something scary and then you have a safe period where you talk. And this right. sequence uses that pattern. It's almost a mini adventure movie in the middle where you have – okay, they're on our heels, we're going to try something to get away from them, and we're going to see if it works. Oh, no, it failed. Crap. Well, let's go to ground and talk and hide. Okay, now it's safe for a second because we're having a conversation. Right. And then going out. So you act, And then and what the movie does, and this comes back to Goldman's writing as well as the editing, every time we repeat that structure, they are a little dirtier. They've yeah. lost something. We go from two horses to one horse to no horse. Right. We go from someone who's supposed to be their friend who is scared into affect it to, to turning them in and then we go to a friend who just wants nothing to do with them right and, and also it's important to bring up that 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 sheriff is the most sobering um uh scene in the movie yeah and uh we'll talk about it later how this affects uh affects the 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 grander scheme of, of westerns of u.s westerns but that he is telling them it, it, it's time you know, you're not going to be able to enlist in the army and they'll forget all the thieving and all the shit that you've done and they'll forgive you. Uh, your time is over. This this has been coming for a long time and you might be affable. And he says, uh, you know, I, I've never met anyone better than uh, nicer than you, Butch, and, and no one faster than the kid. But your time is done. You know, this is the end. And, uh, you know, having those compressed scenes of chase and the decompressed scenes of talk, it doesn't matter what they talk about, the dread is just going to be increased. Every single scene of talk, uh, okay, so even though we're not talking about it, the whorehouse is a, a time of respite. They got away. They're happy. They're even gonna get, they're even gonna get laid. They have a guy that's going to send the, the posse off in the wrong direction. But the posse comes back uh, when they get to the sheriff. The sheriff is telling them, your time is over. Uh, every single thing that they do uh, to, change, to, to get rid of their tracks, to throw them off the scent, not working. Uh, and when they get to the scenes of, who is, uh, who is this? Is it Lord Baltimore? Is it Joe LaForce? These are times where they're getting they're they're going through those stages. They're getting to the point of almost accepting their death and it could be argued that Sundance is going to accept his death in a final fight out, uh, a final shootout rather than jump off that cliff because he's come to accept it. Yeah. He's sick of the dread. Well, you know, the thing about a half an hour chase sequence is when you say the words half an hour chase sequence what comes to mind is boredom right like right. you think no way in hell and what is amazing about the sequences is that the way the editing uses by using repetition and by mod, by continuing to kind of almost repeat these we're going to try something it fails we're going to try something it fails we've gone to ground we get discovered we get to go to ground again we get discovered is that the instead of boredom the overriding feeling beyond dread in this is exhaustion yeah 
And I and I don't think I've ever been exhausted by a scene like this before. Yeah, they're being worn down, and you're you're being worn down. In fact, it's only it's it's only by the skin of their teeth that they survive, and and really that's the only that's the only respite that we get. Um, because the next, I mean, this this is totally the the thing that pushes them to leave and and go to South America, which is basically the the, the second half of the movie. Um, this, this kind of chase, see, at some point I remember, uh, Paul Newman was really outspoken about, we don't need to have this big a chase. Once we get to the sheriff telling us that our time is done and that they're just going to, they're not going to stop until they kill us, uh, that should be enough for us to go to South America. And George Roy Hill and William Goldman are still, you know, they're still steadfast. They're arguing, no, you need that chase. And I think that that's absolutely true. I mean, it's it's one thing to have someone tell you tell you that, a, a sheriff that maybe you're friends with, but it's really not going to sink in until you get away just by the skin of your teeth. They really could have died during this whole chase they could they could have been taken out it it takes someone who's i mean you know say what you will about sundance but butch cassidy is he's got cowardly parts to him he he he's about saving his neck so uh paul newman's approach of you know the the sheriff would send us to to south america i i, I disagree you need something so extreme something so exhaustive that you're like, you know what, I need out now. And I think that's what they did. Yeah, and I think that it is it is that last act of the, you know, because if you want to look at the chase, we're, we're only really talking about the second, like the second and third act of the chase sequence. But, you know, you actually break it down into from train to whorehouse is act one. Yeah. Um, from whorehouse to sheriff is act two. And from sheriff to the cliff is act three. Right. And it's in that third act where the words of the sheriff, because you go out into that chase sequence believing that you're dead, and then you're still not allowed to be dead. You right. know, like, yeah, you're, you're only going to get run down, you're only going to lose, and you have another exhausting chase sequence with that cloud hanging over your head until you get to a cliff. And that cliff is important because the point at which two characters are willing to jump to their possible death as their only possible salvation are characters that will do anything to survive. And before that point... They hadn't made that decision. Going to Bolivia is not a big deal after you've jumped off a cliff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They'll go. <laughs> they have no problem with with that trek after that. Absolutely. So yeah, you need that. You and this is why Goldman is kind of a genius of a structural writer. He obviously knew you needed that last section of again almost the exact same chase sequence we've seen twice before. Yeah. That ends in that moment on the cliff where it's just like. And actually, there's that there's a bit of dialogue there where they say where he's like, the next time I say let's go to Bolivia, you know, why don't we go do it? And and Sundance laughs and goes, yeah, next time. Yeah. And and that's the point when they that is the point when they are so exhausted they will go to Bolivia. Right. And and I love that you keep referring to these mirrors because it, it comes back even in uh, in comic use when when he's trying to sell him on going to Australia at the end of the movie. Yeah, you, you get that another mirror of like here is another ridiculous idea if we get out of the sequence. <laughs> but and, and and the fact that he's completely against it until uh Butch Cassidy tells him that they speak English in Australia. <laughs> that they they wouldn't be tourists or or stick out like a sore th- sore thumb there. So so before we, we wrap up on this, I, I and I, I think this might be a, a – I say wrap up as if this is not going to be an important part of the conversation. This might be one of the most about what this scene yeah. is, is that 
I want to talk about the context of, you know, this movie as a whole, but this scene really exemplifies some of the historical context, both of what was going on for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and what was going on for the American Western at that point. Absolutely. So you, you had told me something that this is sort of the, the last hurrah of the American Western, right? Absolutely, yeah. 1969 was the end of of not only the, the main Western era. In fact, it could be argued it was probably the end of the 50s or early 60s, but the most popular westerns, at least that I can uh, figure out of the time period, were probably the European, the spaghetti westerns, of which I, I love too. But we've moved into like the whole the whole decade of the '60s is really self-reflexive. It's postmodern. It's it's commenting on tropes and cliches of the western genre. Um, those those spaghetti westerns are playing like best ofs of the of the western genre. These are these are Italians shooting these movies in Spain because Spain Spain's landscapes look the most like the American Southwest. Um, they are commenting on this genre that they've grown up, grown up on and, and grown to love. It's the same with how the French uh, uh, had to, to, uh, to show the Americans that they were making film noirs by talking about it, by writing about it. So at this point, the American Western was slugging along, arguably from probably a better part of the of, of a decade um the only place where where westerns i think were still pretty big were on television um but as far as films went it just did did not draw people to the theaters because probably but probably because they could watch the westerns at home on their tv and those little kids who grew up on it they were the ones watching the westerns it wasn't so much a family outing anymore but you're absolutely right uh about it being the end i mean 1969 sees two movies this and the wild bunch and uh sam peckinpah's the wild bunch is also a movie about men out of time and i i don't mean that uh i mean that two ways i mean out of time as in that you know their, their time is done but also men that are still trying to hold on to a time period that has passed. They, they're, you know, they're from the 1860s and they're living in the early 1900s. The early 1900s industrialized world does not need uh, a cowboy, much like it didn't need samurai. So when you have industrial nations coming together, which will lead to World War One and World War II, uh, when you see that level of of weapons and artillery and war, those those landscapes are not the prairie. Uh, they are not the um, the the woods and the uh, prefectures of Japan. They are not those those type of, of glorified, romanticized um, settings of, of samurai and cowboys. And really, I mean, that's the truth. Sam, samurai films and, and Western films have a lot in common. They're about um, uh, the heyday of, of romantic ideals and morality. And in this time period especially, we're talking about the death of that. Yeah, I mean, the the the... the the arc of the American West starts off as this wild West of people going out and speculating and homesteading and the rail lines being very quickly built to support this new infrastructure. And that's where we get this wild West. The problem of people that thought the wild West were always going to be the wild West is they forgot that once those train lines became entrenched, the 
the businessmen were going to move in, the government right. is going to move in, and the 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 free for all that helped the West build now is no longer needed. Now it's time, as you said, for industrialization. It's time for capitalism, and yeah. we get you know the 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 changing force in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid that we get in the sequence is H H is H H Harriman. What was his name? The 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 money guy who sends these people after them. Oh yeah, E H Harriman. E H yeah. Harriman, who you know, here's a guy who these train lines are how he transports his money. Yep. And now we finally have someone in the West who has enough money and enough stake of money that is willing and able to spend a shitload of money to assemble the fucking Justice League Absolutely. to come after this dude. <laughs> um, I, like I like them being called the Justice League. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> so, And that's where we, we've ended up. This is no longer... You know, there was a period where there was no one really willing to spend the resources to stop these outlaws, which is why they were able to go... And there's always going to be people that are at the end of their time. And yep. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are people at the end of their time. Yeah. And, and it, like you said, it's, it's, it's mirrored in the, in the scene with the sheriff. And uh, it's, it's really mirrored in this whole, the whole movie. The whole movie's uh, mission statement is that. And, and, you know, there's a line that, you know, that connects both to their, their predicament and the predicament of the American Western, which is all you can do is choose where you're going to die. Absolutely. And and there's a sense with this movie and Wild Bunch that, you know, they are telling the stories of people who are choosing where they're going to die as the Western chooses where it's going to die. Right. But that's also interesting. You know, I see that parallel with Wild Bunch and and, uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid that both of those groups had to go to Central and South America. They had to go to a place that wasn't uh, as affected by uh, government and capitalism. They had to go back to areas that were unsettled or like the Wild West. Um, Also, with the benefit, especially in the Wild Bunch's case, of having corruption. I mean, uh, the the armies. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to to spoil it for you. Um, it's a it's a very small element of it. Is just the fact that you have um, these these people that are easily bought on on both sides of of uh, outlaws and of uh, lawmen. And I, I guess you see that too in, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I mean, even though they're going to Bolivia, and in real life, they they farmed in Argentina for four years before they even went to, I believe, Chile. And uh, they they committed a robbery, I think, either in Chile or back in Argentina before they even ended up in Bolivia. This, In reality, these were the last few years, or maybe the last year uh, of their lives. They were in Bolivia. So seeing seeing this, seeing that parallel, it's both of them have to leave the um, the industrialized or the the soon to be uh, more civilized American West to to find a place where they st- still mean something. You know, watching this scene, especially and the movie as a whole, but definitely the scene, the the. The thing that connected that I thought was really interesting is that the themes of this movie remind me a lot of John Woo's Hard Boiled, which yeah. is another movie about the end of an era. It's a movie about the, you know, the, it's a movie made right before the Chinese takeover yeah. of Hong Kong when all these directors are about to leave. They are men out of time. They, you know, the, yeah. the days of the wild Hong Kong cinema are dying and you get these movies that are goodbyes. 
this endless yeah. series of goodbyes of tough guys being forced to say goodbye to things. Right. And and it's interesting to see that, you know, and like you mentioned, the a lot of the Japanese um, movies about samurai also about saying goodbye to that culture. And it's just interesting that this scene parallels this idea that keeps coming up that of of people who are who are at in the wrong time period. Yeah. That you know, they they're they're twenty years too late. The world doesn't want them anymore. And it's, it's it's potent in this scene. Yeah, they grew up during uh, they they do they grew up during times that kind of shaped them that they they're looking back to. I mean, that's true about the samurai, that's true about um about uh cowboys in this time period outlaws, but you know, the samurai were built around uh, swords and bow and arrows. They weren't ready for flintlocks. They weren't ready for for bombs and for guns and uh, muskets. Uh, for the cowboy, they aren't ready for the developing nations. They're not ready for the government. They're not ready for the capitalism. And honestly, they're not ready for for a faster pace of life. They're not ready for uh, what is an Eastern way of life making its way across the country. Civilization is the, is the thing that a cowboy, or uh, outlaw rather, uh, doesn't want. You're not going to have civilization without having law, law and order. And that means that uh, the, the super posses are going to become more prevalent. The you know if they stuck around only a, a, a few years later, uh, you had federal agencies that were going after gangsters uh, for bootlegging. So that you know the the prohibition era uh, gangsters were probably the last hurrah of anything that we've seen of of, of cowboys and outlaws. And and you know it's what's interesting is if you narrow back in you know to that scene of the the sheriff is you know the the definition of when you really get into what classical tragedy is all about it's about you know you have a hero that has a tragic flaw a flaw that if they could just change if they could just be a different person and make a choice that is different the tragedy would not fall on them and they often get a warning or a series of warnings that if they could just change who they are they would be fine and then they can't and that leads to their doom and this and in a lot of ways Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is a classical tragedy in that we get this moment with the sheriff where the sheriff tells them that, you know, this life is over for them and they're doomed and they get this brief reprieve when they go over the cliff. And if they could have gone to Bolivia and not started robbing things again, yeah. maybe they would have been okay. But they can't because Butch and Sundance are Butch and Sundance. Yeah. You know, that that is who they are. And this moment, this scene is important because... It is the crux of the classical tragedy. It is the moment when the oracle tells them what their fate is. Yeah. And their fate isn't set, even though the oracle always pronounces it as their fate is set. The underlying idea is your fate is set because you can't change. Yeah. And and that this idea of being a person out of time, if you could just move with the times, you'd have been fine. But you can't, right. and thus the world is going to grind you down. Exactly. It, for, for characters that can't change, there isn't a uh happy victorious ending for uh for this movie for characters that can't change butch and sundance are, are going to die absolutely um, it, but but it's also funny you know since we're talking about context that that this movie does have a conceit and it allows us to still keep their legend alive because we don't see them die we see them in freeze frame <laughs> 
still being heroic. Yeah, they get there. They've they've chosen their moment, and that's thus the end. It's the um, you know, we can assume what happens, but yeah. we end on the legend, not on the broken, bloodied bodies that exactly are bound to follow. Exactly, which is different in in many respects to Wild Bunch. Wild Bunch is finite and defined and and really uh, hammers its its point home whereas this this still has a tinge of romanticism to it even though it's uh it's beckoning the the end of the the western and the western genre wild bunch is uh like oh we're gonna put it in the coffin uh we're gonna hammer it down and we're gonna throw it in a river you know it's it's <laughs> really straight up to the point we we are this is this is it yeah um wow the, craig this was a absolutely fantastic conversation about this scene i i i really i really enjoyed this this was a great I, a great opportunity i enjoyed it immensely thank you so much for for having me on to talk about uh one of my favorite scenes and one of my favorite movies and and thank you for making sure that I, I saw it because I definitely needed to. It's great. Um, you can find uh, Greg on Twitter at uh, Mr. Greggles. That's G-R-E-G-G-L-E-S. Um, and that's Mr. spelled out. And yeah. you can find me on Twitter at Salon. That's S-A-A-L-O-N. The make the make sorry making the scene podcast can be found on my blog Salon Moyo S A A L O N M U Y O dot com where this and other episodes are available for your listening pleasure. Greg, thank you once again for being on th- on the show with me. Eric, always a pleasure. Great, and have a nice day. And I'll see you guys next time for whatever the scene might be. Oh, I know it's the-